Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. First Corinthians chapter 16. I meant to look when we started. Uh, it was sometime last year. <laughs> I think last fall, October maybe, when we started this. And here we are. As we've seen, the Corinthian church suffered from a heavy, heavy dose of selfish, self-centeredness rather than loving unconditionally, even to the point of personal sacrifice. They pursued their own interests. Instead of banding together as fellow soldiers on the spiritual battlefield, they huddled in their self-appointed little groups and fought against one another <laughs> instead of against the enemy. You see, as congregations become more and more inwardly focused, they lose sight of their outward mission. But when the members of a church begin looking up and out from their local problems to see the great needs in the world all around them, they gain a perspective that had been missing, one that needs to be in place. They begin to see that the church is bigger than their own congregation's backyard. And that the mission is not only local, but it is global as well. And so as Paul brings this letter to a close, he reminds them of a major financial need among their brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem, which happens to be the grandmother church of them all, right? By lifting their heads out of their narrow, it's all about me focus, they would discover the part that they could play in helping others overcome trials and hardships and become a church going beyond its own borders. I like the sound of that, don't you? I liked it so much I titled this message Going Beyond Borders. <laughs> Let's take a look. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. This last chapter actually falls into three sections. Um, the first section, it has to do with taking up collection, and then, and then Paul gives some, some general exhortation, and then, a, and then there's this, his final farewell, his final closing, the final greetings to the letter, and we're going to check all these out. This first four verses deals with offerings and collections. So he says, now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to, to go also, they will accompany me. The phrase now about in the Greek is peri d, is letting us know once again that Paul is responding to questions that have been raised in a letter that he had received from the Corinthian congregation. There have been several of them, and now obviously he's dealing with the question they had asked, which was about 
the proper procedure for the collection of money for God's people. And so first Paul mentioned that he had given similar direction to the Galatian churches. That's important because I think he wants the Corinthians to know that they were not to bear a unique burden all on their own. He's actually encouraging them and inviting them in to be a part of something bigger, a larger effort that was taking place. Keeping in mind what Paul had said at the end of chapter 15 in verse 58, he basically says in the middle of that verse, to always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. He just so happens that he's about to give them some opportunity to do that <laughs> in terms of giving financially. Paul was collecting money to give to the believers, as I said, in Jerusalem, who were feeling the effects of a severe famine. Now, what's interesting about this, we had learned earlier on in our study of this Corinthian letter that it is possible that the Corinthians themselves had experienced a time of famine and hardship. And so that isn't going to stop Paul, however, from still encouraging them to give, even out of their own need to bless others in the larger body of Christ. Paul suggested a simple method for gathering funds. The Corinthians were to take a collection on the first day of the week. Paul mentions the first day. I think we probably understand why, because it was the day on which the early Christians met, as it continues to happen today. They gathered together for worship and fellowship. And Paul desired that the Corinthians offer money for the poor, and check this out now, as a regular part of their worship. You see that? First day of the week, when you gather for worship, it's also when I want you to bring some money, we're going to collect that up. Part of their worship. Giving has always been a part of worship. However, God doesn't just want our money. He wants the love and obedience that that giving represents. Amen? That's what he is after. And so Paul also insisted that everyone contribute. The apostle expected every Christian in Corinth to give to the collection, not just the wealthy, everyone, and even sacrificially. Yet each person was not to give a specific amount. He doesn't say anything about a specific amount. He just says, but an amount in keeping as seen in Numbers 18, also in Malachi chapter 3, is probably on Paul's mind as he's providing here uh, a basic guide for the procedure of taking up a collection. You see, even in the Old Testament, believers were to give according to their means rather than a flat rate. We don't see that being practiced either in the Old Testament. According to your means, I believe the apostle was laying down a biblical practice that is to continue on into the New Testament church today. The tithe was required throughout the Old Testament law, but it actually, I find this interesting, you probably will too, if it just might just be a reminder for you, it actually precedes the law. You'll remember that Abraham gave a tithe to a person named Melchizedek. You guys remember that? In Genesis chapter 14, who was Melchizedek? A incarnate 
um, picture of Jesus Christ, an Old Testament type of Jesus that appeared in the Old Testament. God places a high priority on giving. Now, some of you who haven't been around here for a long time, you might be thinking, here we go again, a church asking for money. And I, I, I didn't plan to say this, but I, I think I probably will. It's, um, it's because I have been asked by some of you this question. This is, this is for those of you who, who are kind of new here. Dave, how come you never talk about money? <laughs> I've been asked that. And as those of you who are a part of this church know, we don't take up an offering. There's saddlebags back there. And you are encouraged to drop something in as unto the Lord. When we started this church, I believe that God had put it on my heart to join with you in a faith venture. We're going to trust God just as you trust God with your finances, okay? So... I very rarely, if ever, if I talked about money, I am a little bit tonight, okay? So, you all right with it? It's in the Bible. (laughs) We're just going through this letter and it just happens to be there. God places a high priority on giving. The prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verse 8 says, and most of you are familiar with this verse, because you've heard it a lot, (laughs) probably over the years, will a man rob God? Will a man or a woman rob God? Yet you rob me, God saying through the prophet. But you ask, how did we rob you, God? (laughs) And God says, in tithe and offerings. You see, if we don't tithe, we are robbing God. Wow. The tithe isn't giving to God something that is ours. That's what we need to figure out. It's not like we're giving something that belongs to us that is ours and we're cutting him a big break. (laughs) No. You're actually returning a portion of what already belongs to him. (laughs) Yeah. Malachi says two verses later, in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. God is saying, let it go, give it up, and watch what will happen. As most of you also know, this is where Malachi says, where God says, it's the only place that God says, test me. Let it go, give it up, and watch what happens See if I don't bless you, God says, in a way that will be beyond your ability to even contain it. Be it emotionally, financially, eternally. I'll bless you so much, you'll never, ever regret bringing me the tithe. Putting a priority yourself on this whole idea of giving to God what is already His anyway. Paul just scratches the surface on giving in this letter. He will say more about it in his next letter to them in 2 Corinthians. 
Nevertheless, by turning the Corinthians' attention toward the desperate needs of the church in Jerusalem, and by calling on them to contribute to the cooperative efforts of other churches, Paul seeks to correct their long-standing habit of selfishness, being inward-focused. One final comment on money. It's been said that money can buy us anything but happiness and take us everywhere except heaven. <laughs> it is both a cause of evil for those pursuing it with passion and an effect of evil for those who acquire it by all unlawful means. In the hands of the wicked, it can lead to great destruction, but in the heart and hands of the righteous, it can bring great good for many. In our money-crazed world, the importance of money can be greatly exaggerated. I think you all know this. The truth is, there are many things in this world that money just simply cannot buy. We could spend the rest of the night making a list of those things, but just a short, short thing on this money can't buy wisdom. It can't buy health. It can't buy a family. It can't buy friendship. And it can't buy love. Now, this is not to say that money has no role to play in life. Like air itself, nobody can live in this modern world without it, right? I mean, we get that. And as Paul points out in these first four verses, without reliable financial support, Christian ministries would dry up. Churches would close their doors. Mission fields would become barren spiritual wastelands. Bibles would not be printed. Christian organizations would be abandoned. And while money can't buy the blessing of God, money itself can be a blessing. Amen? Both to the giver and to the recipient. Verse 5. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Although it was Paul's plan to winter in Corinth before traveling to Jerusalem, he adds a very important phrase here. It's one we need to make sure we catch and live by. If the Lord permits. Crucial. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs tells us, right? Chapter 3. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Therefore, wise is the person who says, this is the way the day is mapped out. This is the scheduling of my week, and this is how it's supposed to go. <laughs> if you've got calendars like Marilyn's and I's, did I say that right? Marilyn to me? The two of us? 
wherever you got stuff scribbled all over that monthly calendar. The idea here is, Lord, no matter how busy it looks, no matter how scheduled I am, you can interrupt it <laughs> as much as you want whenever you want. Verse 8, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urge him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. For Paul, the church in Corinth wasn't just a layover. His day-to-day -day plans were always subject to the Lord's will, as we've just seen, but he still exhibited a strong desire to engage in face-to-face -face personal encounters with his spiritual children in Corinth. Even though at this point he's been gone for about five years from when he was there for that year and a half. We call this discipleship, right? One-on-one, <laughs> -on -one, face to face, personal, personal. In the meantime, he would send, he says, Timothy, his young protege, and later on, Apollos. Now, by mentioning this interaction with his brother, Apollos, over ministry matters, probably pretty wise that he does this, because remember now, Apollos He's one of the favored guys back in Corinth. He's got a fan club back there. How do we know? Chapter 1 says one of those groups was named what? The Apollos group, right? Paul indicates in mentioning to him and in their cooperating together, indicates the essential unity between him and Apollos. These men saw each other as ministry partners. They weren't competitors. So their disciples should see them in the same light and act the same way. By recognizing that the ministry transcends their own city, their own backyard, if you will, the Corinthians would overcome their it's all about me attitude and see themselves as a small part of a much larger global body of Christ. And that's what Paul is doing here by mentioning his effective work that's going on in Ephesus. And Timothy has been ministering throughout as well. Apollos can't get there yet, but he will because he's caught up in ministering elsewhere as well. He's painting a picture for the Corinthians. Not just about you. There's a bigger picture here a worldwide mission that we're involved with, and we invite you to be involved with it as well. Get your heads out of your own selves. Get over yourselves and start seeing this as God wants us to see it. It's not just about me. They would see that Paul had fruitful ministry in Ephesus. 
Apollos' love for the, for the church beyond his fans in Corinth. And Timothy, relatively unknown to the Corinthians, deserved as much respect as Paul because of his labors and his effectiveness and his faithfulness in serving the body of Christ throughout, as I said. Once the Corinthians could see their place in a larger worldwide church, they would be able to become partners for ministry to others in the global ministry mission. Verse 13 and 14, B, th this is such a great verse. I, I love this verse, these two verses. If you don't have it highlighted or underlined or something, shame on you. <laughs> Kidding, of course. But you better do it afterwards, okay? <laughs> Be on your guard. What's our verse here? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. In these two verses, there are five exhortations. <laughs> in and, and all five are in the present tense. What does that mean? It means this is the way believers are to continually live all of the time. Okay? What are we to be on guard or watching for? Well, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, the roaring lion who's out to devour. Amen? Looking for those weak ones in the body. But also... For the promised lion of the tribe of Judah, hallelujah, <laughs> who is coming back for us. Our perspective is balanced to the degree that as we watch what's going on around us, we also watch for Jesus' return for us. In the New Testament, this terminology frequently describes the expectation of Christ's return. You see it in Mark chapter 13, also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to remain ex expectant of our Lord Jesus' return. Looking attentively for the return of Christ implies a readiness that includes a lifestyle of righteousness and holiness and service unto the Lord. I have heard it said, you probably have too, that the world can be divided into three categories of people. The few who make things happen, the many who watch things happen, the vast majority who have no idea of what's happening. <laughs> Paul warns us not to be a part of the ignorant masses who have their heads either in the clouds or buried in the ground. Rather, we are always to be aware. How aware are you of the realities of the world around you these days? Do you keep a sharp eye on the subtle 
and obvious dangers, distractions, and desperate needs of the world? Or like the vast majority who have no idea of what's happening, have you fallen asleep at your Christ-appointed post? Paul says, be on your guard. Be a faithful watchman on the wall. Amen. And then Paul says, stand firm in the faith. When we look at the massive oak tree, we realize it wasn't massive initially, right? And an oak tree is nothing more than just a little nut <laughs> that refused to give ground. I love that. So too, by God's grace, we don't have to give ground. Thank you for saying that, amen. We can be consistent in our time of worship. We can be committed to our study of God's word. We can be faithful in prayer. Don't give up. Don't give up ground. Finish well. Next, Paul says, be courageous and be strong. These two exhortations closely related. The original Greek meaning was to conduct oneself in a courageous way. Essentially, it means to grow up. Start acting like an adult rather than like a child. Push toward spiritual maturity had failed to shed their dependence on their blankies, their bottles, and their binkies. <laughs> <laughs> that had pacified them in their baby Christian days. How about you? How far have you come? Are you any more mature in the Lord than you were three, four, five years ago? The first four commands sound like an abrupt order shouted by a commander on a battlefield, doesn't it? Wake up, stand firm, be courageous, be strong. However, while not diminishing one bit the fact that we are indeed in a spiritual battle. This fifth exhortation in verse 14 puts everything in its right perspective. Do everything in love. With words and sounds reminiscent back to chapter 13, amen? The love chapter. Paul is saying, without love, you won't be alert, and you're not going to be discerning. If you stand firm without love, you're going to be an isolated fanatic, intolerant towards the lost. Without love to balance your maturity, you will be critical, judgmental, and harsh. And if you are strong yet without love, you will lack the tenderness that will attract others to Jesus. Verse 15. You know that the household of Zephanus were the first converts in Achaia, 
and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. It would seem as though the family of Stephanus was among the first of Paul's converts in Corinth when he first got there. In fact, when you go back to chapter 1 of this letter, we realize that Paul says there was only one group of people that he baptized. Everybody else was baptized by somebody else. Stephanus and his family were the only ones that the Apostle Paul did the water baptism with. They were amongst his first converts. Of them, Paul says, the whole family was devoted to the ministry of God's people. Listen to what the King James Version, how it puts this. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I like that. <laughs> if you're going to be addicted, <laughs> be addicted to serving Jesus. Every single person will eventually be drawn to and infatuated with a passion for something. Amen? What is it for you? For the family of Stephanus, this passion was serving the Lord and his people. They were all about ministry. And it wasn't just mom and dad. Because it says the household, this is involving and including their children as well. We don't know how old they are at this point. They could be teenagers, maybe young adults. All of them, however, are serving together. Wow, what a blessing. How cool is it to see an entire family serving together in the local church? What a great deal. Stephanus was joined by Fortunatus and Achaicus as an official committee sent from Corinth to Ephesus to confer with Paul about the church problems. They are, they are obviously were being told here. They were the ones who took the letter that was written in Corinth with all of their questions to Paul, and they met up with him in Ephesus. It's these three guys who were the guys that did it. And so Paul was basically letting us know, yes, they came and they filled me in on all of the issues and all of the problems that was going on, but that isn't all that they did. It wasn't just problem, problem, problem. He says they blessed me and they told me about some other good things that God was doing in Corinth. It wasn't just all bad. And, they, and Paul says, and I was refreshed in my spirit because of these men. They encouraged me. And all that was going on. Paul urges his readers to submit to such as these. And everyone who was involved in the work of the ministry. In this way, they would be giving proper recognition. The Greek term for recognition means to acknowledge and to respect. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to submit to their leadership. The leadership of these three that he mentions out of respect for their position as leaders, 
in the church and for their obvious faithfulness in serving the Lord God. With regards to church leadership, David Pryor writes, we tend to give leadership to those who have received one particular kind of education, who have a measure of articulacy and general ability to think and speak quickly on their feet. That's a nice way of saying who can shoot from the hip. <laughs> who measure up to worldly criteria for leadership, but Paul says, and what he says indicates that the authentic, solid leadership of a local church will come from people who give themselves to serving God's people. The author of Hebrew writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. And then listen to this. This might be why there are pastors leaving left and right every day. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. It's kind of like, what? That's not fair. <laughs> I have to give an account for you. So shape up, will you? <laughs> Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The writer of the Hebrews says that in chapter 13, verse 17. I want to add one more thought to this. Pray for the one who will bring the message at the church that you would attend. Ask God to give the person liberty, clarity, boldness, sensitivity, insight, and freedom from distractions and petty worries. Because you see, it's amazing how much more the message will mean to you when you've had a part in its delivery. If you not already are taking time to pray for me, as I basically do most of the preaching here, or whoever else might be, if you're not already doing that, may I ask you and encourage you to do so? Please? <laughs> Thank you. Final greetings. We find in verse 19, along through the end of the chapter, that and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. These greetings from other churches and other areas of the world reinforces the awareness of the larger body of Christ, the idea of being a church extended beyond borders. A fact that the self-absorbed, immature believers in Corinth may have forgotten as they got wrapped up in themselves. 
In fact, so caught up in themselves were they, lacking in Christ's honoring fellowship. I want you to hear it like that because if you don't really understand the background, then you don't really appreciate Paul's saying to them, greet everyone with a holy kiss. I like it. And what I mean by that is, <laughs> these Corinthians, they were probably coming in snobbish. I don't even like you. I'm going to sit on this side of the room, and I'm not going to acknowledge anybody over on that side of the room. And so what does Paul do? I love it. I don't not only want you to acknowledge them, I want you to go up and embrace them and get, plant a big old kiss on their cheek. <laughs> I mean, talk about bringing down the barriers, right? And that's what he's doing here. <laughs> Their own local church back in Corinth, marred with divisions, desperately needed to foster an environment of acceptance and forgiveness. Even today, in our keep your distance society that creeps into the church in which real personal relationships are cheapened by online networks we are losing the ability to freely give and receive tangible signs of caring and affection one of the best ways to truly communicate our love to others is through personal presence face to face and caring contact. For Paul, even though he had thrown some stern words at these Corinthians for their sinful behavior, he now reassures them that they are deeply loved by him. Paul uses two interesting words in verse 22. I want you to see this. That word curse is the Greek word ananthema, which means to be cursed. The words, come, O Lord, maybe you've heard this one before. It's the Greek word, maranatha. Have you heard it? Sure. Which simply means, Lord, come. Is this a word of harshness? Perhaps not. It could be that Paul took pen in hand because that's what he's told us he's just done here. He's been dictating this entire letter, but here at the very end, as he's closing it out, he grabs the pen himself and writes these final words. And with pen in hand to plead with the Corinthians saying, if you don't love the one who is altogether lovely, the one who died for you, the one who cares about you, the one who gave you everything that he might be with you in this life and in the ages to come. If you don't love this one who is all wise and all knowing, yet all loving and all forgiving, then you curse yourself. That's what he's saying. And so, follow the verse out. Maranatha! <laughs> Come, Lord. Basically saying to those Corinthians and to us tonight, you need to make your decision. It is the responsibility and privilege of the church to offer all, young and old, 
something they'll never get anywhere else. Love and truth. Amen. Only the church can say, we'll tell you the truth and we'll speak it in love. Unlike the world, the church is not out to exploit you. In Jesus' name, it's here to love you. The world is in desperate need of love and truth. Would you agree? Paul had told the Corinthians the truth, and yet he had a deep love for them and encouraged them in spite of them. <laughs> May we be and do the same. Amen. Father, we come before you tonight and we thank you for this letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians. They had a lot of stuff going on. There were a lot of issues. They had a lot of things messed up. And we certainly would not um, want to be guilty of pointing our finger at them, looking down at them as if we were better because we know we are not. We thank you for this letter that's been placed in your Bible and in our Bibles in your word, Lord because it says so much to us. And I pray that, Lord, you would continue to speak to us, that we would continue to give ourselves to you, that we would be courageous, that we would stand firm, that we would do everything in love, representing you, displaying you in a way that you deserve. And as loving people of God, attracting people who need Jesus to Jesus. <laughs> I thank you for this, God. Continue to work in our hearts. Continue to draw us closer to you. May our love for you increase and for this world decrease. I pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com.